Lachlan Trust, each relationship matters, and we know that your relationship with money may be complicated and may need some extra love and attention. But where do you start? You're too nervous to look at your investments in that emergency savings account you meant to start? Well, it doesn't exist. This new normal feels anything but normal. You're not alone, especially now. I'm Julie Beckham, the Financial Education Officer at Rockland Trust, and this is the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. As I said, this is the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. So before we start, stop blaming yourself. What you should have done and could have done, didn't know and should have known, doesn't matter anymore. There's no use spending one more minute blaming or shaming yourself. You weren't born knowing how to manage your money. Chances are you didn't learn it in school, and you were probably told to be quiet if you dared to ask about money at the kitchen table growing up. The world of personal finance is vast. There seem to be so many do's and don'ts in the litany of personal finance products, terms, to-dos, can keep us from asking important questions because, well, we feel dumb. It's my goal to break down the barrier of shame that keeps us from getting the answers we need to become financially educated, capable, and confident. Who am I? Well, about 70,000 elementary school children call me Miss Money because I've been singing and dancing about saving, sharing, and spending money in their schools for the last decade. But for our purposes, I am your host and your educator. You ask the questions, I bring in the experts, and we all get a little bit more educated. Oh, and I'll break down all of the fancy jargon, keep you from being overwhelmed, and make sure that you don't feel badly about not knowing everything and for making mistakes. Because really, with everything going on in the world right now, you don't have time to get down on yourself. And you don't deserve it. We're all in this together, starting now. And like I said, there's no shame in this money game. Your investments, to look or not to look, that is the question. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. I am so excited to get this podcast started, and I couldn't be more honored than to have David Smith, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer for Rockland Trust Investment Management Group, here today to discuss your finances, our finances, the world economy, and what is going on during this COVID-19 crisis. I think we all have a lot of questions in our minds, questions we don't have answers to, and questions that we really don't know how to ask to get the right answers. And I'm hoping that we can ask some of those today. So thank you, Dave, for being the first guest. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, Dave, We all know that the economy is fragile right now. I mean, as much as we kind of try to live under a rock or avoid the bad news of the day, we can't ignore the fact that businesses have closed, millions of people have been laid off, furloughed, or seeking unemployment. Our world is very different than it was just a couple of months ago. And of course, that affects the world economy and our own pocketbooks. Can you kind of make sense of what's going on economically? Sure. So, I mean, this, like a lot of crises that happen in time, they're always different. You know, there is the 2008-9 time period that we went through was driven primarily by the financial system being on the precipice of falling apart. This one's obviously very different in the sense that it's driven by a medical issue. And the medical issue is being treated, if you will, 
at the moment at least, by essentially putting the economy on full stop. We had an economy that was chugging along at about a 2% GDP growth. GDP, it stands for Gross Domestic Product, but it's like a grade of how well the economy is doing in a country at a given time. When the GDP is rising, the economy is doing well. When it's falling, it's not so great. People in finance talk about the GDP a lot. So now you know. And then all of a sudden, because of this medical problem, we said everybody has to stop. You need to socially isolate, essentially shut everything down. And the only way that we come out of this is to make advancements, I think, on the medical side, because social distancing is not something that's going to help the economy long term. So when it comes to the medical side of things, I think you have to think about evaluating potential outcomes in three broad categories, the first of which is testing. Now, there are a lot of folks who are coming out with tests. We're getting test results more quickly. We've got to increase the accuracy of these tests. And then finally, we've got to make the cost of the tests as low as possible because we're going to have to test everybody with some frequency. For example, if I test this afternoon and my test comes back negative, and tonight I go out and go to dinner and I get infected by either my wait staff or another patron, tomorrow I could be positive and carrying it and I wouldn't know it unless I got tested again tomorrow. So we're going to have to test a lot of people a lot of times and it needs to be accurate and it needs to be cheap enough that we can do it with some frequency. The challenge with this particular medical issue is that we can be carrying this disease and not know it and therefore infect others unintentionally. The second part of this is ultimately if we can get some treatments that reduce the severity of the disease so that the compromised older folks do not die with the same pace or likelihood, ultimately then this becomes a substantial inconvenience and not a severe health issue. And I think if we can ultimately get some treatments, and there's been some advancements, we've also had some negative news come out about some potential treatments. They're working very, very hard to try to understand various drugs that have already been approved and perhaps some that haven't been approved that might reduce the severity of this disease, and that would be a very desirable outcome. The final component of this is looking at a vaccination. And this is an area where there's been an amazing amount of resources, money, talent, and focus put towards trying to come up with a vaccination. The challenge with a vaccination is best case scenario, it's six months out, more likely 12 to 18 months out. And there is a likelihood, although hopefully a small chance, but there is a potential that this is something that we can't produce a vaccination for. I think about the flu, for example, and despite many, many years of trying, we can't come up with a really effective flu vaccination year by year. And then there are diseases like HIV, where we still don't have a vaccination, another virus that's out there. So there's a chance, albeit small, that the effort that's being put in may not be successful in coming up with a vaccination. But until we get some of these advancements on the medical side, it's challenging to see a pathway out of this for the economy because the cure right now is to continue with the protocol of social isolation, which by definition is putting a very heavy burden on the economic activity. At the end of the day, the economy can't really begin to recover until we get some clarity on a pathway out, and the medical advancements are critical for that. Wow. You know, there's so many things about that, Dave, that we can't control, right? We can't control 
whether we as a population are tested. We can't control when the medical advances will happen. But what we can control about this relationship between this world health pandemic and our finances is what we look at, what we pay attention to, and what we worry about. But as we look at our own personal finances, what should we be worried about? I mean, for those of us who have some investments or have been saving for retirement, what do we have control over right now and what can we look at? Great question. First and foremost, I think it's really important that individuals have a cash reserve. And we've always advocated a cash reserve. And I can't imagine a better example of when having some money set aside for uh, a number of months of, of expenses is more appropriate than right now. And generally, we tell folks you should have at least three months worth of expenses sitting in a very safe place, either on the banks, you know, in, in a bank deposit product or in a money market account. For folks who have income streams that are more variable in nature, we actually ex- we would extend that timeline and say maybe as much as a year of expenses sitting in a safe place. And this particular time period is an amazing example as to why that's important. There are a number of people who were working in very busy jobs six weeks ago that now are unemployed. And for many of them, they didn't expect this. You know, they're literally the economy was very, very strong. Unemployment rate was incredibly low. The job prospects were very, very good. And here we are six, eight weeks later, and their world's turned upside down. So this is, I think, something that we will be able to use as an example going forward as to why we advocate for having some uh, substantial sum of money put aside for just this type of circumstance. I think it's also very clear as to the challenges that we all face as individuals with the severe burden that we all have to fund our own retirement. I've said on many occasions that the baby boom generation which is now either recently entered or soon to enter retirement, is the first generation in many that is substantially responsible, if not wholly responsible, for their own retirement. And that burden is something that many, many people have not been educated to manage. And it puts people in a situation where, given that responsibility, without the training that's required to kind of handle that, they tend to make emotional decisions with the money, which is the worst thing that you can do. Emotions, as we know from studying human behavior, can cloud judgment. And that's particularly true when your own well-being, financial or physical, is put at risk. And in this scenario that we're going through, both the physical well-being and your financial well-being are at risk. And so this heightened sense of urgency is causing, I think, has caused some folks to to make decisions based on emotions that uh, in the longer term will likely hurt them. In other words, if you had, for example, panicked and sold in the thick of the selling activity that we've experienced since the beginning of of February 19th of 2020 and sold, say, in mid-March, you would have experienced losses in the negative 30% range. For some reason, on the 23rd of March, there's been a pretty substantial recovery in the stock market, over 25% at this point. And if you had sold in that mid-March timeframe, you would have absorbed all the losses but not participated in the recovery. That selling decision at that time probably felt good, 
for those individuals, they had reached maybe a maximum pain point and said, I can't tolerate it anymore. I need to just go to cash for well-being. Uh, but it would have been damaging to their finances, obviously, even in the short term, but clearly long term as well. So the, t- the two things that we always advocate for is make sure you've got enough money to get by in case an emergency happens. And then longer term, make sure that you don't allow your emotions to cloud your judgments and do things that are going to damage your ability to fund your retirement long term. Right. So what I'm hearing from you, Dave, is that we invest in our future and we think that investment will bear interest and will eventually be able to live on it. And when the economy does something that we've seen in the last few months, our fear sets in and we just want out, right? It's like the quickest escape route. I'll cash this in before it gets any worse. And that that emotional response to anything reacting, right, instead of responding, whether you're you know in a, in a conversation with someone that's heated or talking about your investments is a dangerous choice sometimes. Would you agree? Absolutely, positively, yeah. Emotions tend to drive human behavior to think very short-term. You know, you think about it when you're worried about your physical well-being, your adrenaline starts to run, your people dilate, and you get into survival mode, and you make decisions that are certainly relevant to surviving, but very often aren't thinking about what's going to be the implication of this down the road because right now survival is the only thing you're concerned with. Emotions tend to cause us as human beings to have clouded judgment about the the decisions for the intermediate to long term, and that is really, really impactful to people's ability to kind of manage their own retirement because, by definition, managing retirement is a long-term decision. Right. And so many of us, though, have been thrust, like you said, into survival mode. And it was so abrupt. And those of us who did not heed the advice of having an emergency fund, because I think it's human nature. Oh, that happens to other people, right? I won't need that. That won't happen to me. Or, you know, you just got a new roof or you went on a vacation and you used that money and you're now suddenly thrust into survival mode. It's no wonder that people do liquidate their retirement or do make kind of desperate impulse decisions. Now, for those folks who didn't have an emergency fund and were contributing to their retirement, the government has put together some options to tap into that 401k or those retirement investments if necessary. Now, I think that I'm not a a financial advisor. I am a financial educator. But one of, I think, the funniest and most relatable pieces of advice I've heard lately is treat your 401k like you would your face. Don't touch it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But for those who have to dip into those funds because they literally are in survival mode. What are, can you explain some of the new acts that have come into place? Yeah. So I, first of all, agree with that statement with regard to kind of treating it like your face. Don't touch it if you can avoid it. Obviously, if that's the only means you have to feed your family and keep a roof over your head, you have to do what you have to do. But it should be the last place you touch. So what the government has recognized full well is that retirement plans have taken a hit. They recognize that people's financial situations at home are challenged. And so they've done a couple of things. First is they've allowed folks to tap into that if they've been in, affected by COVID and they need access to the funds up to $100,000 without without the 10% penalty on top of it, which is really helpful if it's in the last place you go. For folks who are currently in retirement and are taking their required minimum distributions. They've kind of triggered that because they've reached a certain age. The government has said in 2000, county or 2020, you don't have to take that if you don't want to. 
And what that, in theory, would allow you to do is avoid pulling money out when your IRA has been hit and give it an opportunity to recover so that you don't have to take any money out again until 2021. The CARES Act, created by the United States Treasury in response to the COVID-19 crisis, has created the ability for individuals under 59 and a half years old to withdraw up to $100,000 from their retirement accounts without having to pay the standard 10% penalty. The CARES Act has made other provisions that you should check out if you're retired and take out your required minimum distributions. So those are a couple of things that the government has allowed us to do to hopefully manage this a little bit better. But at the end of the day, you know, the hope is that you don't need to touch that IRA or 401k. You can kind of let it come back and grow tax deferred for hopefully a long time until you need it for retirement or if you're in retirement for another year or two, because there are real benefits to letting that money compound tax-free. You'd hate to sort of take away by tapping into it now if you can avoid it. So, so that's our advice as well, although clearly recognize that in these circumstances, given trying times that we're in, some people just have no other choice. No, definitely. I mean, it is good that it is an option for those who are needing that. Another question for those who are on the other end of the spectrum, and maybe, you know, they are not as immediately financially impacted right now. They're not in survival mode, and they're wondering there's been some jib-jab around that now is a good time to invest with the, you know, the dip in the stock market. Do you have any advice in general about that? So one of the things that is very, very challenging to do is to figure out in any time what the market's going to do next. In this challenging time, I would say it's as opaque as ever. We don't have a crystal ball here, but there's never been a time in my career where I wish I had one more than I do right now. The future of this thing is so opaque because of the medical challenges we described and the economic implications of the activity that we need to take to manage the medical challenge. It's very, very difficult to understand what's going to happen next, when we'll be able to go back to work and the economy will get back on track and ultimately companies will start to generate revenue and earnings again. We know that time in the market, not timing the market, is ultimately the key to success. So if you start investing today and you are investing for the long term, I feel very good about your ability to generate returns that will help you reach your long-term goals. So it's impossible to predict so the, the key is, I think, to strategize, come up with a good strategy on how you're going to invest the money and then use the vagaries of the market up and down as opportunities to rebalance. So we're a rules-based investment management shop, meaning that we set our client asset allocations and then when they become skewed because of market change, we use that as an opportunity to rebalance. Simply put, rules-based investing is when you follow a prescribed set of rules, calculations, and algorithms, as opposed to making emotionally driven decisions based on the market's ups and downs. I think you have to begin to invest for the long term when you've got the resources to do it. I think you can never time it perfectly, but ultimately, if you have a long-term objective, you've got to get started, and so now's as good a time as any. And then stick to rules-based when you do roll out your strategy so that you don't try to time it in the future either because you probably won't get it right with any consistency or persistency. 
Okay, this is great, Dave. So let's say I find myself in a position to start investing or I check on my 401k and I, I want to learn more about my account and who's managing it and, and what it's doing, but I have no relationship with the fund manager and I, I just feel unequipped to start a conversation. How do I start? Yeah, I mean, I think the first way to start is to truly understand what that person's incentive is and make sure it's aligned with yours. Ultimately, you don't want to be getting advice from somebody who is going to benefit financially from giving you one product over another. In the industry today, there are, at a very high level, sort of two models that advisory firms operate under. One is in the brokerage environment. They operate under what's known as the suitability standard. And in Many other environments, like the bank trust environment or the registered investment advisory environment, they operate on what's known as the fiduciary standard. Ordinarily, I would jump in here and explain the difference between the fiduciary and suitability standards, but the example that Dave is about to give pretty much covers it. The best example I've been able to come up with to try to explain that to folks is the following. I don't think anyone could argue that water is suitable to us as human beings. If I were going to represent a uh, to you as, as, as my client, and there were two bottles of water that I could potentially provide you, one which gave me a 5% commission and one which did not pay me a commission at all, under the suitability standard, I am free and clear to sell you a bottle of water with the 5% commission because it's clearly suitable for you. Probably not the optimal thing for you, but it's clearly suitable. As a fiduciary, I have to put your best interests first. So as long as the products are identical, I have to give you the lowest cost product. I have to make sure that what I'm giving you is more than suitable. It's the optimal solution for you. So one of the first things I tell people is to make sure that you understand what that relationship is with the person who's giving you the advice. Are they behaving as a fiduciary? Are they acting under the suitability standard? The second thing is to really, truly understand how they're generating revenue. There's nobody that is providing advice for free. And so understanding how they're generating revenue to make sure it aligns with your interest is absolutely critical. Some firms operate under a commission-based model, and so their incentive is to get you to make decisions, change things, to get paid on transactions. Other folks, typically fiduciaries, operate under a fee-for-service kind of model where typically their fee is aligned with the portfolio that they're managing for you. And so there is, in my opinion, a direct line of, of interest in between the two because if your portfolio appreciates their fees go up, and if your portfolio declines, their fees go down. And I think that's a good alignment of interest. Incentive is is to try to work together to ultimately have the portfolio grow to reach your goals. It's not perfect, but it's certainly better than being incentivized just to transact. But understanding that and making sure that you're comfortable with it is is an important question to ask. Beyond that, I I think it's really helpful to get a sense of what is the philosophical approach to helping clients reach their goals. You know, for example, I mentioned earlier that it's really challenging to time the markets and do it consistently and persistently. If the manager or the advisor has an approach that is a market timing approach, you should ask point blank, very bluntly, I'd love to see if that's your approach. 
evidence that you've been successful at doing this in the past and, and understand why you might think you'd be able to continue to do it in the future because everything that I've read suggests that it's challenging to do that. So those are three very important questions I think you can start out with, and I think you'll get a very good sense for what the advice is going to be and what, what incentives are driving that advice to get the conversation started and you can take it from there. Okay, so is that opening question as blunt as, I'm wondering if you are a fiduciary or do you work to the suitability standard? Is that how you say it? What's the kind of script for those of us who might feel undereducated or insecure about starting this type of conversation? You can sort of break the ice by explaining that this is not your area of expertise, but you're trying to become more informed and become a better consumer of the service. And And again, most practitioners, I think, appreciate somebody who's trying to kind of understand this a little bit. I, I, I used to say, I think it was Cy Sperling who said, an educated consumer is our best customer. And I use that all the time. I, I like it when a client has done their homework and asked insightful questions because quite candidly, it's an easier client to handle. And over time, Ultimately, what you discover is is those people really begin to understand and appreciate the value that you're delivering. No, definitely. I mean, an educated consumer is a better consumer. And I think that that getting the word out, even through this podcast, it creates a discourse and a conversation and a, a thirst to find out more and to ask the questions that are really most relevant to your personal situation and your values, which ultimately, that's what it comes down to you know, what you value, what your goals are, and those are the conversations that you can start to have with an advisor who is operating with you in mind and does meet the fiduciary standard. So that's great. Wow, Dave, thank you for this candid advice and and a kind of summary of the state of the economy as it pertains to our own finances, our own choices, and the options that we have to seek advice or just handle our own finances moving forward. I think there are some amazing takeaways for those listening who who I hope I can call our listeners as we plan to continue bringing on informed guests and great insight and education in this no shame zone. Now, this is the no shame in this money game podcast, so there has to be some game element here. So I'm going to bust out my portable spinning wheel here and see what kind of random question you get as we start to close out this first episode. And we've got this one. Okay, this is a good one. What is one thing you wish you had known early on in your career about investing that you now know? That's a great question. I would say that I wish someone told me the cobbler's shoe story a long time ago. Let me explain what I mean by that. The cobbler's shoe story, as you may know, is, you know, if you ever look at a cobbler, he always has the worst pair of shoes on because the last thing in the world he does is take care of his own shoes because he spends all day long taking care of everybody else's. I also, over time, recognize that there's a reason why lawyers don't defend themselves in court and doctors don't treat themselves with medicine, that emotions cloud judgment even for professional people in investing. So for many years, I I handled my own financial situation. Not surprisingly, I did a little bit of cobbler's shoe scenario where it was sort of the last thing I did was take a look at my own stuff because I spent 12, 13, 14 hours a day trying to drive returns for my clients and was always the last thing that I focused on. And often when I did, it was at peak emotional times, either at times of sort of markets were doing very, very well and I, I tended to chase things 
or in times of challenge, I tended to panic and do dumb things with my own money. So about 16 years ago, I became a client of the investment management group of Rockland Trust, and I've been very pleased to be a client of ours because I, I've allowed a team here to manage my own personal finances and taking my own emotion out of my own management of my own financial situation has been incredibly valuable to me and my family because I typically make mistakes like everybody else. I'm a human being at the end of the day. And when it came to my own scenario, it was hard for me to sort of delink my own emotion from my own trading and portfolio stuff. So a cobbler's shoe story is one that is very appropriate. I wish I had learned it early and, and taken the heedance of that because I think I'd be in a better financial situation than I am today. It's not that I'm in a poor shape by any means. I'm very fortunate. But but I, I did make some mistakes early on that had I not made those mistakes, I'd be in an even better situation today than I am otherwise. So that, that would be the one thing that I, I wish I, I knew and, and learned and, and, and sort of accepted to, to make change earlier on. I love that answer. You know, it's really honest and seriously so refreshing coming from someone with as much knowledge and experience as you. It's funny. I think a lot of us can apply that in whatever field we're in. Okay, one last question. Since Rockland Trust is the bank where each relationship matters, and we've made a commitment to help our customers, consumers, and community have a healthy relationship with money, if you could use one word to describe your relationship with money, what would it be? Respectful would be the word. I respect money and, and the power that it brings, but I also recognize that I am a human being and have emotion too, so I need to respect the money and, and how it can have an impact on your life and on your judgment. But for many, many people, the primary concern they have in the world is the well-being, physical well-being of themselves and their family. And the secondary one, the second most important for most folks is, is their financial well-being. And it's a very powerful thing that deserves uh, to be respected. Thank you for listening to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast brought to you by Rockland Trust, member FDIC. My name is Julie Beckham, and yes, I do take requests. So be sure to email your personal finance questions and curiosities to me, your host and your educator, at julie.beckham at rocklandtrust.com. Hold up. 